Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 150. Date of recording is Monday, March 30th. Today is day 15 of self-quarantine here in New York. Things are weird, but we're trying to have some semblance of normalcy. So if you've been following along for the last four or five episodes or so, Obviously, like everyone else in New York and like most of the country and most of the world, I am on quarantine. So I have been recording remotely. Obviously, I love to do these face-to-face. It's how I prefer to do it, but it's the best I can do right now. And I hope that if you're listening, that these will give you a little bit of inspiration once things normalize again, whenever that is, to give you a push to go out into the world, to explore, to become a voyager, to appreciate your friends, your family, strangers, and to go to new places. My guest for today is Greg Hill, otherwise known as Electric Greg. Greg was the feature of a documentary called Electric Greg, and the documentary followed him as he summited 100 mountains, so 100 summits, actually. And he tried to do so with the smallest carbon footprint possible. And that was by going mostly electric and human-powered. So running, walking, biking, and then by using an electric car. It was a really fascinating documentary, and it combined two things that we've been passionate about here at TVTV Industries. And that's both appreciating the environment and taking care of it, and also exploring new places. So Greg does both of those things, and he does them very well. He's like a renaissance man within the world of adventure sports. So some of these things I'm going to read to you, these come straight from Greg's website. All right, so he climbed and skied 2 million vertical feet. This was back in 2010. So it was 71 mountains in North America and South America, in 266 days of ski touring. So if you go to his website, which you can find in the show notes, you'll see some videos of people talking about his feats. And these are other people who are mountaineers and skiers and adventurers. And they're like completely stunned by the fact that he's able to have the will and perseverance to do this stuff. So also in his accolades here are, he's the first North American to climb and ski 40,000 vertical feet in 24 hours, and he set a world record of 50,000 feet in 24 hours. He is the winner of the Whistler British Columbia Randani race three years in a row. Greg lives up in British Columbia, and he pioneered the northern Manashi Traverse. It's a 21-day ski traverse where he summited 21 peaks along the way. And then, like I pointed out, and is the subject of the documentary, he went to over 200 summits um, throughout the world, which is absolutely unbelievable. So you can go to YouTube and you can stream his documentary for free. It's 20 minutes or so. I think it's 19 and change. Uh, it's called Electric Greg, or you can get it through his website. I recommend if... You know, if you're listening now at home, or uh, well, obviously you're at home, right? You're on quarantine. You're not going anywhere. So go like pause this right now and go watch his documentary. And you can also go to his website where he's got all sorts of videos. He's been the subject of a few other documentaries. And you can see like his amazing accomplishments and his incredible life. And that will give you the context, sort of the precursor to understanding this conversation. Uh, really glad and, and gracious and humbled uh, by the fact that he gave me his time today and he joined the podcast and he joined the Voyager family. So thank you to Greg for doing so. Yeah, I think that's it for my intro on Greg. I think I'm going to uh, plug Vask one more time. I plugged them last episode. But they make really awesome uh, hiking gear, hiking boots. And they sent me uh, a really cool pair of boots that I'm just itching to get to use as our timetable for return to normalcy gets pushed back and back and back. Um, but you know, on my time here, I've been looking up national parks and I've been looking up some other places to go around the world once things free up, and I can't wait to break them in. They're waterproof, they're really cool looking, they're really sturdy, and uh, they sent me a pair. So thank you so much to Vask. It's V-A-S-Q-U-E. 
go check them out. And you can even say you are a member of the Voyager family. You can also participate in giving to this podcast to keep these stories coming, and that's on Patreon. You all know what Patreon is. Mine is patreon.com slash the voyages of Tim Vetter. All right, folks, 150. That feels like uh, an important number. It ends in a zero and uh, it's halfway to 200. So thank you to everyone who has followed along for the first 150 episodes. Here's looking forward to 150 more. Thanks, everyone. Enjoy this conversation with Greg Hill. I think maybe that's kind of a good place to start because I've been trying to, in some ways, keep my mind active while we're under you know, de facto quarantine here. So we've been watching a bunch of documentaries. Um, I think I'm like fully hooked into the like adventure and mountaineering algorithm now because I started watching some videos and now all sorts of other stuff's popping up. And I came, came across uh, Electric Greg, which was on the Banff circuit. I love those films that, that Banff picks up. Uh, I was able to go once in person. Um, and we checked it out maybe a week, week and a half ago. And that was the impetus to, to reach out to you. So I'm really fortunate that uh, you responded. And I'm really happy and honored that I get to spend some time with you today. So thank you. Awesome. Yeah, no problem. I enjoy a good morning chat with a cup of coffee. Cool. So I'll say that, you know, for people who are listening, um, the other day I had Kyler Melton on. I think you might have met him. He did the documentary, The Imaginary Line, and mm-hmm. um, really cool film. And so I told people, you know, you're in the very first minute here of listening, but just pause it and go watch your film. It's about 19, 20 minutes so that you have some some context for this conversation. I'll try to give it a brief synopsis if people are, are driving in their, probably not driving in their car, but if they are still working and it's something where they can't pull up a video right away um, and you can go to YouTube to, to stream it. But essentially, am I doing it justice, Greg, by saying that uh, the film is about a project you did in which you were hiking, skiing, and um, I think running and like mountaineering a hundred summits while doing so with the smallest uh, carbon footprint possible. Is that uh, a fair, broad synopsis of it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, in, in 2016, when I started thinking about the project, I was looking at my footprint as an adventurer, and I had a huge truck, I had a helicopter, I, had, I, had not had, I didn't have a helicopter, but I used helicopters, I had a snowmobile, and, you know, I love nature, but yet I kept looking at the way I was approaching it and getting to it, and I realized that I was really destroying it in the way I was getting to it. So it didn't really make sense. So I spent a lot of time, well, many years trying to figure it out and, you know, realized finally in 2016 that there were some electric cars that would finally have enough range to make it feasible for me to adventure. And my goal essentially was to debunk some of the fears around electric cars. And I mean, if you look at it now, there's tons of people are less scared about them, but then it was like, if I could adventure and live, you know, some of a hundred different mountains and just prove that, adventurous life was possible then I and living in Revelstoke, this town that gets six feet of snow, like settled snow, that you know, if it worked for someone here, then it could work for anybody in the rest of the world and therefore help kind of progress away from fossil fuels and that sort of thing. You know, what what I do is is different from what you do. I think what you do is different from what ninety nine point ninety nine percent of the population do in terms of your accomplishments and achievements in mountaineering. I just really enjoy enjoy traveling. Uh, I've done some hiking, but <laughs> nothing quite to the extent that you do. But something that I have become quite conscious of is even in traveling, um, what I'm doing to to add to environmental issues in different countries. And I've spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia where you can see very clearly in rivers, uh, on, in beaches, that there's trash, there's tons of plastic. And some of that is due to insufficient municipal systems, but a lot of that waste that especially washes up on shores comes from other places. And so I try to think of like not using single-use plastics when I travel and what I can do to minimize the amount of waste that I'm producing because there's no guarantee that there's a proper disposal or a proper recycling program for that. 
in the in the documentary, there's some like concrete proof of climate change issues that that you see with the recession of like this glacial ice. But I wonder if you could uh, maybe provide for listeners just maybe some anecdotes over the years of how you've seen the climate changing through your mountaineering because you're you're constantly out there. Yeah, I mean, I've lived in, in Revelstoke for 20 years now. And I guess, you know, it's always at the start, it was like, well, this is an interior rainforest. There's no, no concerns about forest fires because it's a rainforest. And, you know, there'd be small forest fires around the province. And you'd think, oh, well, that's fine. This, they're never going to get here. And then it's slowly over you know, over those 20 years, you know, we had a little forest fire one year. And, and then all of a sudden, these crazy forest fires are happening all around North America, you know, the California ones, tons in BC here, British Columbia, where I live. And it got to a point where now in, in August, you kind of don't want to do anything outdoors because there's going to be smoke in the air. And, you know, that's a direct, direct evidence of the heating up of the world is the fact that, you know, now it's like, okay, oh, August is coming. Guess we won't do anything in the mountains because the cardio with smoke in the air is not going to be good. And I'm talking smoke where, I can stand on our local summit here and not see anything anywhere because it's just so densely wow. like, you know, fog essentially. And, you know, that was one of the ones I started noticing was just that the impact of the forest fires and the increase in the amounts of them every year and, and that smoke. And then, you know, last year we had a summer without smoke and we're all relieved because it was like, wow, this, you know, we didn't have any. And it's become this reality in the last 10 years that was never here the 10 years before or the, or, you know, 30 years before that. Um, and then in terms of, yeah, out in the mountains, so in the movie, I show this, the Athabasca Glacier, and I show where my son was born in 2006, and I'm standing on, on bedrock, and the glacier is so far away, I don't even know, 400 horizontal feet away, just in the last 13 years, you know, and it, it's, there was, it's really obvious, you don't even see them as the problem, or hear them, you just think, oh yeah, it was, it's here, and then, and then you come back 10 years later, and you're like, oh my god, I was standing on two meters, six feet of ice here, and now it's, 400 feet away like it's it's really amazing watching them go and like that that glacier is great because it actually has the markers because if it doesn't have markers you just it's just you don't even notice it until all of a sudden it's like wow we are we're getting onto the ice here we used to get on the ice way down there you know it's those are the two main things that i've definitely noticed i mean weather patterns and stuff are i mean weather's always weather it is what it does what it does but um, but yeah, those two major ones are definitely two of the things that was like, oh my God, it's really changing. And then, and then recognizing that I was part of the, the problem and how, how could I be part of the solution really? Yeah. You know, I, I apologize for being like a, a layman when it comes to a lot of technical terms. Um, so bear with me folks, if, if this is the type of thing that you do as well, but I'm wondering if with like rising temperatures, if the window you have in order to climb certain summits, meaning like the the length of time or the time of year is shortened because of the ground being like not as frozen and softer because with rising temperatures there's there's more runoff. It is, yeah, is, no, a little a little different than that is that April forever the first ten years here, twelve years here. April was the month where you got these cold clear nights and you could you could summit anything and ski everything. It was the month to do big descents. And because it, it, it consistently stayed cold enough that the snow was good and, and, you know, it could snow a little bit, but whatever, the conditions were perfect. The temperatures were perfect. But now the last seven or eight Aprils, there's never, it's always been a little bit too warm. And then it just rains right to the top and ruins anything. Whereas in the past, it used to always stay a little colder there. So I do feel like we've kind of lost, lost Aprils as the, as the colder month where you could really ski mountains and where the, you know, the weather patterns seem to be way more consistent back then. And now they're just a little bit more iffy, but definitely the temperatures in April have changed quite a bit. Okay. That makes sense. You know, there's this, um, this funny moment in the film where you and, um, like your, your, your traveling companion are running down your battery to zero. It reminded me of this episode of Seinfeld where Kramer is like past the E and he's trying to take it as far as he could go on gas. Um, but mm. but I was wondering sort of like the logistics of the electric car experience. And if you're going to some more remote places, is there access to 
an electric pump, uh, you know, a recharging station, um, or if like the frequency electric of the pump, I like that. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I well, know. So the scene you're talking about was when we we took uh, a Nissan Leaf that has a hundred mile range, and we took it on a um, a three thousand kilometer road trip from Vancouver down to California, climbing and skiing the volcanoes, and you know. At the time, there was some Teslas or the Nissan Leaf, essentially. And, I, you know, that was the only thing I could rent that year that I could find. So uh-huh. that one was really testing the limits. And the infrastructure in 2017 was not in place. I mean, that was the only road, the I-5 going down, that had some chargers that you could possibly link it up. And, um, you know, we definitely pushed that little car to places that had never been. And quite often, as you go up, you lose a lot of, you lose extra distance. And then ideally, you get it on the way back down because they regen. So there's always this kind of unknown on that trip where it's like, okay, no, I know we're over half, but we're going up. So that means when we go back down, we're going to get a lot back and it'll get us back to the charger. You know, there's always the fail safe that you can go and plug into somebody's uh, 110 or whatever at their house, but it's really, really slow, like three miles charging back an hour. So, there is always that backup plan that you can say, Hey, uh, do you mind if I just plug in here for like 10 hours to get back to the next charger? But, um, I mean, since then the, the infrastructure has changed dramatically. It's, it's, there's chargers in every town in BC now and it's, it's unbelievable. But yeah, at first it was definitely a logistical nightmare. And I mean, even going into Alberta from, from Revelstoke here, it's, there's less chargers there. So to go to certain peaks and challenges definitely required this kind of game. But but every well now there's kind of changing the but typically every every town has been getting a new charger and more chargers and Petro Canada or one of our gas companies has put in chargers all across the country so you know it's changed a ton in the three years I've been driving electrically. Yeah, it's interesting because like to that point I think we we teach something in education uh, and it's like Kohlberg's Mountain and essentially like at the top of that mountain is doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. It's essentially like, uh, what level are you at in making your choices? Are you afraid to get caught? (laughs) Which would be like at the bottom. And then at the top is, like I said, doing it because it's the right thing. And I think that with a lot of things with climate change, it's like people often do what's most convenient for them. And so we either have Mm -hmm. to, to get people to the top of that, where it's like empathy for the environment or we have to make things more convenient for them, <laughs> which might be harder to do. Um, no, absolutely. The convenience is the thing. I mean, we, our whole culture is based on convenience now, and we've 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 gotten so used to it that it's hard to do anything. Like, well, this isn't as convenient as that. But the fact is, if it's better, and if there's enough rewards from doing it the less convenient way, that over, you know, hopefully the rewards are good enough to make it worth the inconvenience. I guess. And then, as more of us do it, it'll become less inconvenient. But um. well, I think you're you're doing a lot towards well, I guess towards both, but you're also doing a lot towards the empathy part. And I'm wondering um, if you've had you know a lot of people reach out to you after seeing not only that film, but you know all of the content that's out there um, with the, either your name on it or with you in it. If if you've gotten a lot of people reaching out to you to say that they've made changes based on uh, what you've put out there. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I've had both sides of the spectrum where I have the, the haters who, who claim, you know, talk about electric cars not being good and, and the batteries, the lithium and all the, all those arguments, which, which are valid to a point for sure. But, um, you know, I've definitely had a lot of people reach out to me that have made little changes in their lives who have either gotten onto electric cars or even, you know, some people have changed their whole businesses and made them more environmental because they realized that at some point you just have to make the move. And having watched my movie to know that somebody with a 200 person office in Croatia has changed it to make it more environmental is amazing. You know, just to see that the impact of my little changes and then, you know, putting a bit of a megaphone onto the idea has helped change on a much broader scale than that. It's really quite amazing. You know, I would have thought it would just be people changing their own lifestyles. But then when Victor got in touch with me and said, I've just changed my whole office and finally jumped onto this thing I've been wanting to do. I was like, wow, this is, this is empowering because, you know, all these things are great to do, but as you know, that it's influencing more people. It's, it's really refreshing. That's for sure. Yeah. That's awesome. There's, um, there's a really honest and touching moment in the film that I thought was really great. 
and it's you uh, with your family who want to go on a trip and you're sort of grappling with the fact that um, you want to stay local and you want to reduce your carbon footprint, but you also want to be there for the memories that are taking place with your family and you want your children to experience the world and see the world and to learn from other cultures. I was wondering if you could maybe just expand upon that and and, and talk about that and uh, maybe talk about like past the film if you've still felt that way or if you've uh, maybe um, made a change in your thinking. Yeah, I mean, well, one, the first changes are mine. As a professional athlete, I was flying around the world like it was, I can't like, I can't even, I couldn't think of an expression it's too early in the morning, but as a professional athlete, I was flying everywhere. I'd be in France one week, I'd come home for a few days and then I'd go to Norway to ski and I'd, for a week and then I'd come home and I'd jump on my big truck, my snowmobile. So every, all those changes were mostly mine that I needed to do. And then, you know, I'm looking at my family, I was like, well, they don't, they're only flying once a year. Like mm. if I can give them a cultural experience once a year, this is worth it. One for them and me to share it with them. And you know, trying to balance out my need to be better with also trying to figure out how to give them a great life. But, you know, that, that is one of the things that we've all of us are trying to be better. We realize that it's progress, not perfection. It's like, you know, I'm trying to be better and better, but I can only get to a certain point, you know, um, with the family, I'm, I'm trying to figure out ways in the future that we could go someplace and do some good while we're there. And I think that'd be really neat. You go to Costa Rica for two weeks and three of those two weeks, you do something to help the community there. I'd love to figure out kind of personal offsets that you can do while you're there. Cause you know, I buy carbon offsets and I know that, you know, I'm putting $50 per ton of CO2 generated towards future projects. And it's, it's, it's exciting. It's great, but it's not tangible. So I'm trying to figure out tangible things to do with them or on my own adventures. If I fly anywhere that I can do, um, but yeah, I mean, with the family, it's conflicting because it's, you know, there are all these opportunities. You want them to have some of them, but you also want to teach them to be better. So it's, it's, it's a fun challenge. Yeah. And you have a lot of cool stuff uh, where you incorporate your kids. There's a, I'll tell people just to go to your website and go to your videos. I think it's under like under videos, uh, other videos or other content where you have this like short clip of your kids like when the parents aren't home and they're out like mountaineering and climbing on their own. And it's really cool. And I've also seen you, you mention your parents before. Did, did your love of the outdoors and of climbing and skiing, did that come from your family or was that something you pursued on your own? No, I, I grew up uh, just south of Montreal in Quebec. And, um, you know, I grew up in the Appalachians and we like on 80 acre properties or in the middle of the forest. So I definitely, grew up in nature, which gave me my, my love for it. And we were a skiing family. So Mount Sutton, where I grew up, my parents, you know, I'd, I'd ski there when grade three, I remember, I think I skied 60 days that year, you know, I'd wow. skip days for powder days. I'd ski every weekend. I'd ski every day on the Christmas holidays. You know, I was pretty, pretty passionate about it. But I think a lot of it, a lot of that passion came from it being this happy place as a kid where I'd be on the chairlift eating snacks with my mom and, you know, what makes you happy as a kid kind of echoes on further. So the skiing started then. And then I, luckily I went to a private school that had offerings of rock climbing and all sorts of other you know, camping things that I learned a lot more on. And then, um, my first backcountry trip was actually with my, my mom and stepdad. We went to a lodge to, for my stepdad's 50th birthday. And that's where kind of the real mountain stuff started for me and, uh, kind of progressed from there. But yeah, even now my, my mom and stepdad, we go, I've probably backcountry skied with them 12 days this last winter. Wow. So we get to share all these great moments out there. Even though they're 70 and 75, we get to go wander around the mountains and be, have fun with them. And they love to share the amazingness of the mountains out there. Did you think as a young person, though, that, like that this could be like this could be your life? This could be a professional career? Or were you like pursuing something uh, more traditional? Mm, yeah, I don't think I was ever made for the tradition. I, yeah. I did go to university. <laughs> I tried a couple of years of biology thinking, I don't even know kinesiology or something, but I think I read too many National Geographics as a kid or um, just, I just had a thirst for more and I've always just kind of wanted to be happy and follow my passions. And that, those were definitely climbing and skiing mountains was driving me for years. And um, I really enjoyed the, the challenge and the reward. And yeah, I don't think I was ever made for a convention. I'm kind of, I like to think differently. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, um, 
your uh, your passion and your joy is so apparent in in the videos. Like you could see it on your face how happy you are when you're up there. And I think that like um, there's also a really big difference between like enjoying being out there and then being able to accomplish what you're doing, right? So obviously like uh, two million vertical feet, right? In 2010. Um, is probably something that a lot of people who know you know about, or the hundred summits. Like, what besides being out outdoors and enjoying the mountain and enjoying exploring? Like, what is it that drives you to accomplish these like unbelievable feats? Um, I, I mean, I, I just love to see see where my mind can take my body, and it's you know a lot of it actually started tree planting, which is this Canadian job where. You go to university, and then you, once you finish university, you go into these bush camps and you plant seedlings every day. And you're paid per seedling, you're paid ten cents, twenty five cents, depending. And and it becomes this game. Once you're good at it, is to see how far you can push yourself each day. And the farther you can push yourself, the more money you make. Um, so for fifteen years of my life, I'd I'd spend three months every summer just kind of pushing it and get, achieving these great goals daily, just trying to make tons of money, making four to 500 bucks a day, just being a total wild man, pushing myself. And I've just, I just like to see what happens and say you peel back all the layers of the onion and you get to the core when there's nothing left, you know, you're too tired to care about how you look and everything and kind of, kind of see who the little, who the core of Greg is. And it's always been a happy place for me is finding out that that guy inside is still just smiling and enjoying pushing himself and, I mean, it's it's hard for those that don't do it to understand, but those that do it, you're like, yeah, we love it. Just you kind of just push and push and push, and and for me, optimism has always been my strength, and and it's helped me get through a lot. And yeah, I, I guess you know, if I look at say the challenges in the mountains, I love that there's there's just many different facets of it. There's the pushing yourself hard. There's the you know endurance wise, but then there's the whole time where you are and enjoying it. And then there's the other side where it's like, okay, this is, un- this is an unsafe situation. And the whole time you have to be paying attention to all the different hazards around you to make sure that you come back at the end of the day. Yeah. There's, um, a, there's yeah, just, it's just, to me, it's just got so many different layers to it that it, 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 it's quite rewarding. There's two things I want to kind of like extrapolate out from that. Cause I think you make some really cool points. Um, one of them is like, um, both in men's journal and in the documentary, you said, I know what my physical limits are. And I'm watching, I'm like, damn, does this guy have any physical limits? <laughs> and then in one of the documentaries they're talking to, uh, it was the, the 2 million reasons documentary. They're talking to some people about what you're about to accomplish. And they're like, I, like, I don't know how he's going to do that. That's, uh, that's wild. Or like, that's incredible. Or that's crazy. What is, like, is it more of a mindset? Like you were talking about optimism and positivity or like, do you have an insane training regimen? Uh, like when you're not on the mountain? I wish I got a dad's thought going on now. <laughs> um, no, I think a lot of it is the, the desire. I, those goals meant so much to me that because they meant so much to me, I would, I would wake up at four and go climb a mountain and be back by nine to be a dad and just do everything I can because the goal was very personal and was one that I, I made for myself. It wasn't something created by anybody else. It's just like, this is what I'm going to try to do. Um, I don't, I, I think originally all those years of tree planting was definitely the training for, for the bigger goals. Um, I mean, I do, I do, I bike a lot. I, I run, I climb, you know, I, I'm, I'm as active as I can, but I, I'm not, by any means, I've never felt myself to be an exceptional athlete. I'm just exceptionally driven. Wow. You just brought up something that you have in one of your... And less so, less so now. Oh. <laughs> Lying on my couch in my PJs with my, with my bathrobe on, I don't feel as driven as I used to be. Anyhow, yeah. <laughs> well, we're all there right now. Um, uh, you have this video where you talk about like your five tips, and you just brought up something where... Um, with one of your, well, one of your rules, not tips, is that you have to always be aware that even when you're sort of, you know, taking a mental break off, at least like 10% of your mind still needs to be focused on what's around you. Now, right before I watched Electric Greg, uh, I watched, I believe it's pronounced uh, Lotse, which is one of the, like the sister Mm -hmm. peaks to Everest. And when I was watching that, like you could hear avalanches 
And the whole time I'm watching that, I'm sort of like biting my nails, like, oh my God, like these people are going to get crushed by an avalanche at some point. And then, and luckily they didn't and they were okay. But then right after that, I watched your film and you get caught in an avalanche and we're watching this and we're like, oh my God, like, does he make it through this? And I'm wondering, like in that moment, is it, is it sheer luck that you, I mean, I know you got hurt and you broke your leg, but is it sheer luck that you survived that? Or is there like something that you can do in that type of a situation? Mm, I definitely always stayed really calm when shit hits the fan. I think there's that, say that 20% that I talked about that's always scared, that's paying attention. Once things switch, it goes to 100%. There's no thoughts about anything but trying to maneuver yourself out of the bad situation you put yourself in. I mean, there's so many things I did wrong that day. There was a lot, there was Kodak courage. There was a lot of things um, that built up to me feeling overconfident that day and not really assessing all the risks. But um, for me, I mean, that was a, that was a massive avalanche. I would say there's a lot of luck involved, especially that day. I mean, I stayed calm as I could to get over to the side to almost escape it. And then I got hit from the top and then I tumbled down for 1500 feet down a couloir. Oh my God. Know, getting my leg broken and everything. And the whole time I just kept thinking up and swim and get to the top. And you know, where I ended up at the, when the avalanche all stopped, the fact that I was up on top and my face was out, you know, I had a, I had a mouthful of snow, but I spat that out. But um, if I had ended up down in the actual trap at the bottom, I mean, there's probably, I don't even know, 15 to 20 feet of snow there. And there was no way I would have survived. So yeah, I mean, there was some luck, but there was also a determined grit that was like, I'm surviving this and I'm going to do everything I can to, to swim, to do my best to survive this. Wow. You, you have as a rule too, sort of remaining, remaining afraid and using fear as a tool. I, I mean, I would imagine it, that would have to be the scariest moment that you've experienced up on a mountain, right? Prolonged moment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Definitely, but yeah, I mean, if if you're being adventurous, that means. Sorry, I'm just take. If you're being adventurous, that means there's risk involved because adventure involves risk, and if you're out being adventurous, you need to know that there's a risk and always keep, like I say, a certain percentage of your mind paying attention to all those risks because because it's it's real out there, and that's why you like the adventures. There's unknown. There's possibilities for mistakes and hazards, and um, you know to blindly be like, oh, this is so fun and not have part of you thinking about all the risks is, is foolish, I think. Once you're an adventurer, you should be paying attention. Yeah. One thing I get really curious about watching all these videos, yours and other people's, and I'll give a personal anecdote, but I've had some, um, some scary animal run-ins while camping or hiking. And I'm, I'm watching some of these and I'm thinking, wow, like you're in some really remote areas. Like what's going to happen if a bobcat or a grizzly comes along. Have you ever had a situation, uh, like a, a scary animal encounter? Have I ever had any scary animal encounters? No. I mean, I've met lots of black bears within 10 to 20 feet and had no concerns with them. Um, you know, one time I was stopping to have a pee in the woods and I, I looked behind me and I thought it was a dog walking past me and it turned out it was a black bear. Whoa. Um, but no, I mean, I've never had any issues. I'm out in the woods all the time. And when people come to visit Revelstoke, they, they start carrying, um, bear spray and everything. And here I am, somebody who's worked in the bush here for years, who travels in remote places and I don't carry anything. I've never had any issues. Okay. Um, I like, I do make a lot of noise. I think a lot of issues come from surprising things, you know, when animals are surprised, they react differently than if they know something's coming. So I, I, you know, when I'm out running on my own, I just, I hoot and I holler and I make noise. And if I'm coming around the blind corner, I, I, you know, again, it's that understanding that there's risk out there and like, okay, well, here's the situation. There's a corner. I'm going to make noise, you know? Um, so that when I come around, if there is a bear there, it would have heard me and not be scared. Yeah. Or what have you. So, yeah, I mean, I'm no animals, as far as I've ever noticed, they're more scared of us and we're scared of them. But somehow I haven't encountered a grizzly anywhere. So okay, <laughs> yeah, that would be terrifying. They're kind of they're they're kind of the unknown that I've I've yet to encounter. Okay, <laughs> you know I, this is 
likely an impossible answer, but um, or impossible question to answer. But I really loved the the video in the documentary on um, Gordon Horn, and I think it's pronounced uh, Monashi Monashi Mountain. Um, Monashi, yeah. Monashi, okay. But it's oh man, it was so beautiful. Like look, like otherworldly beautiful. It, it's something that looks like an alien planet. And I'm wondering, like, I know you've been all over the world. You've done so many summits. Uh, do you have a favorite? Like, is there a place that has wowed you to the point where it uh, stands out amongst all others? I mean, I think every place has its perks, you know, say you talk Jackson Hole. It's got the Grand Teton. It's this incredible mountain and it gets great snow. But then it, when the sun comes, all these faces grew up really quickly or a, you know, Norway is unbelievable. You've got these mountains that are going into fjords and you can grab a boat and ski from your boat, climb a mountain, ski right back to your boat. And I mean, I think the best part of it about adventure is there is endless great places to go to explore and experience. And, I mean, that's what I love about it. But for me, I'm, I mean, I'm sold on Revelstoke. I've been here 20 years and I still have endless mountains that I have yet to climb and lines I've yet to ski. And, you know, in my mind, this place gets the best snow because from November until typically the end of April, we've got great snow. You know, obviously the little windows where it's not good, but I, I, I mean, in my mind, this is the Shangri-La for sure. It's just, it's endless and this powder's incredible and great ski lines. Do you keep track of, um, you know, places and summits anywhere? Like, do you journal this stuff? Yeah, I mean, what I initially did when I first moved here is I, I put the maps up on the wall, the topographic maps, and I covered uh. the entire wall with them, and then I'd start put penciling in where I'd been. And then try to try to put a new line in and as many new lines as I could, summits. And I mean, yeah, I've got a list of of the mountains I've climbed and those maps to me are priceless. I don't have them on the wall anymore. But, um, you know, it's really fun when you put in a new line and then know that you've been there and, you know, you can look back at that line and remember the adventures. And, um, that was definitely a passion of mine for years. It's just kind of keeping track of where I've been and stuff. It's really fun. Yeah, you you mentioned exploring more of um, you know BC in uh, in the future, but are there any places around the world that you also have as a goal? Like, I don't know if you've done Everest or if you have aspirations to do that. Um, do you have any sort of you know like? The- yeah, not no. The big mountains are just a, <clears throat> they're not what I look for. I lo- I'm looking for you know take my group into a remote area and feel feel small and powerless and just kind of go out and enjoy ourselves. If you go into those, you know, I've been up Manislu where I was there for the crazy disaster years ago and you're in these lineups, there's tons of people and it's not just that peaceful um, moments that we get in all these mountains where, you know, there's nobody for 30 miles and it's just your team and you're just out enjoying yourself and, and playing by the rules. And um, yeah, I don't, the 8,000 meter peaks don't really interest me that much. Um, what I am looking into now, I mean, before, COVID and everything was to try to figure out, I mentioned offsets with my family, but say I'm, I'm looking at going to Baffin Island to ski a couple big lines up there. Baffin Islands is this remote Northern Canadian Island. And what I'd love to do is uh, I've started already. I'm in touch with some of the locals and trying to see what their energy needs are. And that if I could somehow go there, do a little adventure, meet them, explore what they need en- for energy purposes, come, <clears throat> come back down here and then raise up a bunch of funds for solar panels and then oh, go back cool. up for another running adventure in the fall sort of thing and then run around and, and, and meet their locals and then go put these solar panels in these, you know, hunting camps or wherever they need them. So it'd be really fun to figure out a way to go on adventures, have that selfish part of it, you know, where I'm climbing and pushing myself, but then have the other part of it where it's like helping the communities. I'm, I'm busy and, and empowering them since they've, you know, given so much to me. That's that's definitely my next stage. It's like electric Greg can't just go start flying places and climbing mountains. Right. <laughs> I'd love to I'd love to figure out how to go and do my own personal offsets, which I think would be really satisfying. And you know, if you come back ten years later and you see those solar panels still powering those remote communities or whatever, it'd be really it would echo a lot longer than just going and climbing some mountain and then coming home. Well, when you want to have the you know, the artistic component to this, right? Like the, the video or the documentary. And I know like, uh, it's likely that electric Greg got a lot of attention to it, but do you pitch these ideas? Like, so for that documentary, did someone reach out to you or did you talk to, you know, uh, a director and sponsors and say like, this is something really cool I'm working on. And then they jumped on board with it. Well, 
Yeah, I mean, I was doing it regardless. My my sponsors are, as long as I'm, you know, pushing limits and inspiring people, that's typically all I'm supposed to do. Um, but yeah, what happened with that is I was about, I was a year and a half in, I was probably at about 60 summits when finally uh, the Switchback Entertainment, which are run by some friends of mine, were like, Greg, let's let's make a movie of this. And I, I was so thankful that they came in because Anthony has a great eye and working with him to make the the project successful on a video video level was really important to me. And I was so lucky they came. Yeah. But I mean, for me, I was doing no matter what, I mean, to me, my goals are, they're authentic. They're, I try to make them just for me, ideally that they make sense for the rest of the world. But I mean, it, it was, it, it was, it was something I needed to do It was time of my life, 40, whatever I am, 44 now, and just trying to, you know, trying to change the way I do things because I need to, you know, I'm needing more back from just adventures and to be able to create a story that made people think and, you know, look at their own lives and make little changes was really important to me. And I was super lucky that Anthony came in and brought his skills and his storytelling to make it, to make it a reality. Yeah. And I was thinking about the, those little changes, right? Like you mentioned at one point in the film, and I think you have this um, on your website too, about being a, a weekday vegetarian, and I think it's even, mm-hmm. maybe it's your brother, is it, who has the TED Talk about it? Yeah, exactly. Graham Hill's my brother. He's been an environmentalist for years. And in 2010, he talked about weekday vegetarian, and I, I wasn't ready then. We used to like to trick him when he came here and feed him meat on Wednesdays just because, ha, ha, ha. But <laughs> um, as, a, as a health, for health reasons, it's nice to eat less meat. But also you want to balance it out. So the weekday vegetarian is just a great way to kind of give yourself some parameters and Monday to Friday, we don't eat meat, and the weekends we do. And, you know, sometimes we eat on a Tuesday if there's leftovers or if we're out of friends or whatever, but just kind of gives you parameters to, to change it. And it is one of the biggest ways we could cut our carbon footprints to anybody around the world if you just start eating less meat. So, What do you, what do you bring with you? So, like, when you're, when you're going to reach a summit, what kind of foods do you bring with you? Um, I typically have a blend of real food. I mean, I'm a big fan of peanut butter, butter, and honey. You have to have the butter. It can't just be peanut butter and honey. It's got to be peanut butter, butter, and honey. But that's <laughs> like a simple, powerful, powerful meal with fats and proteins and sugars and everything. Um, but yeah, I like a combo of mix of also with like some cliff shop blocks and some of the quicker energy stuff is good to balance out. And with real food, avocado sandwich or whatever, you know, a bit more on that side too. So it's it's usually a little bit of everything really. Yeah. And like, I, I'm, I don't, I'm not trying to make you like the spokesperson for environmentalism, but just because you have experience with this, I think there's very, uh, there's minor changes, right? Like the very simple fact of like, once you enter somewhere, everything you brought with you, bring back with you, which seems self-explanatory, but clearly isn't if you go anywhere from a, a national park to a beach to a city and you see trash everywhere. Um, so that's like a a, a, a a small thing that each individual can do. I think maybe on a larger scale, we can start rethinking like travel by cruise. Is a Carnival cruise line uh, necessary <laughs> considering you dredge up the bottom of the ocean at the ports and uh, they produce a lot of waste? Like, do you really need to go to the all-you-can-eat buffet and all-you-can-drink buffets on a cruise line, right? Like that's more of a macro change. Like maybe that's something we consider phasing out of our uh, social activities. But um, is there anywhere you can either direct people or um, are there any suggestions you have uh, maybe besides uh, trying to go electric in terms of traveling and, uh, you know, doing adventure sports in a much more sustainable manner? Yeah, I don't, I think it's that, that is just coming on board now. I don't know if there's any particular site you can look at. Like I'm working with the town of Revelstoke to create a list of stuff so that when people come here, they can figure out which hotels are better to stay at or which activities are better. But I don't feel like there's any like one given spot. I don't know if Tree Hugger has, I don't think they've got an adventure side to it. Um, yeah, I'm not really sure on that. I think the first bit is just questioning everything and being conscious of your impact. And once you start being conscious of it, then you can start looking at it. Um, you know, nothing's perfect. I think that's the key takeaway that I've gotten is it's like, well, let's not stress about being perfect. People are going to attack me, whatever. I'm never going to be perfect, but I'm, I'm a hell of a lot better now than I was three years ago. That's for sure. And still searching out ways to be better. 
Um, you know, we're big, biggest thing is obviously policies. We need major policy changes to happen on a, on a much bigger level, but, um, yeah, I think just being conscious and then just looking at it and being like, okay, well maybe we're just doing one family trip a year and let's do this one. Cause it, it obviously has less impact than the cruise ship or what have you. For um, sure. But yeah, I mean, I guess I'm going to segue into something else here. It's like, you know, right now, obviously the world's in turmoil. We're all kind of questioning everything. We're all looking at our, our, our bank books and wondering what we can do and, you know, why we weren't more prepared for this and what have you. And it's a, it's a crazy time in the world. And I was, you know, looking at Revelstoke and right off the bat the other day, I kind of freaked out a little bit because I know that we're just, we just don't have enough food in this town. And I started to push everybody the can to build bigger gardens. And all of a sudden I'm helping create this bigger movement in our town where a lot of us are, yeah, I've always had gardens, but this year I'm going to do a lot more because I'd love to, love to be a bit more sustainable just on my own level, you know, so I can at least say that I'm growing 30% of the food I have or who knows what level I can get to, you know? Um, and then what's interesting with that is that's also a way to offset carbon in this town is, is to grow more instead of importing more food. The more we grow here, the better it is for the environment. So it's kind of this, interesting time where I'm like pushing everybody to garden more because that's key. But uh, if the world goes back to normal in two weeks, it'll be better for the environment also. So it's kind of an interesting time. And it's also right now, a lot of us are feeling powerless and what can you do? So I've been looking, especially in our town, it's like, well, we're all stuck on our properties here. We could all start building garden boxes or greenhouses. Like all day yesterday, I built this greenhouse that I'm going to erect on my property and just trying to find things that feel like I'm fighting against the uncertainty of the future. I really feel like that is the best thing that all of us can do now. It's like, well, it's, everything's so uncertain. None of us know what our jobs are going to be like in a year or what it's going to be. But so what can I do now to prepare for a year from now? Yeah, Greg, I think that's a really cool point. Um, I've been talking about that the last couple episodes because I think maybe like the last four of these I've done have been with folks who are either documenting things in the outdoors or actively participating in sports or events or things like that uh, out in the environment and in nature. And so I think like, yeah, like of the two things I hope people can sort of come out of this with is one, yeah, a renewed mindset on how we're going to treat each other and treat the world moving forward. But then two, a greater appreciation for the world that we have. Um, and so like, just like you were talking about, like use, if, if it's possible now to use this time to educate yourself or to learn a skill, um, or to, yeah, like if you're, most people are sitting on the couch. So if you're consuming media, try to consume some stuff that's going to get you excited about the future and educated and ready to go back out into the world and to enjoy these things. So I think you, uh, it's an, it's an absolute new landscape, right? It's going to be different. I mean, there's, it's, we'll probably get over this in the short term. And then what happens a year later, like we, <clears throat> the more we can think about the future and prepare for it, the easier all this uncertainty is. A hundred percent. And I think you click both, both of those boxes, man. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll kind of wrap it here. Like that's why I was really excited to talk to you. Um, because you know, you're fighting the good fight in terms of helping to protect the world that we all want to enjoy. Um, while also, you know, showing people like how cool and exciting it can be, uh, to be out there to, to summit a mountain and to, um, you know, experience nature and, and people and everything like that. So, uh, yeah, this is a really, really cool to talk to you. I'd love if you could maybe direct people to where they could find out, uh, more information about you and your projects. Yeah. I mean, I guess a lot of it I'm thinking about now is that we have a lot of strength as an individual, but as a community, we have much more power, and that's much like my 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 search to get people to change their their ways environmentally. Is that yes, as individuals, so let's get the community on board and and make the biggest change you can. Um, you know, a lot of my stuff. I've got electricadventures.ca is where I've been kind of doing my latest stuff. I've got an old blog, greghill.ca, that's pretty dead. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know how to access it anymore. But um, you know, I think. I think it's a time right now where a lot of us can, can act on things that we haven't had time for and start, you know, changing our ways for the future and looking at what we can do. And if we're out, you know, we're all at home on our couches or whatever, stuck in our houses, let's research, let's dream and let's figure out how to make the future better. I'm with that. Um, listen, dude, like I'm, I'm just a guy that gets to talk to really cool and interesting people. So, uh, it's a real privilege for me to get to, 
talk to like a really cool, diverse range of people. And um, I really respect what you're doing. Uh, I have a lot of admiration for you and I really love all of the, the videos you have online. So it's, it was a real honor to get to talk to you today, Greg. Awesome. Yeah, thanks, Dan. It's been fun. Uh, find it funny that I'm interested, but that's great. <laughs> <laughs> That is a wrap on episode number 150 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thank you everyone for listening. I know that there's like a ton of media coming at you right now. You know, all, <laughs> every celebrity who is kind of bored is out there doing a, a live music on Instagram stories or a, a live stream of some sort. And um, there's a lot of people out there trying to get your attention right now. So I appreciate everybody who's been tuning in and been listening while they're on self-quarantine or while they're still working. Appreciate everyone in the medical field. I have a few family members, myself, who are working right now. Uh, So thank you to all of you. Thank you to the Voyager family. And as always, please take care of each other. We will catch you next time.